The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Well, hey, Ben. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing just fine. It's a, a Sundance episode. Uh, we're going to talk about, actually, we're going to talk to some of the award winners, which is very exciting. First up, the creative team from Bad Press. Bad Press is a documentary that I don't I don't want to give it away. We're going to get into it in just a few moments here, but absolutely worth seeing. It does not have distribution at the moment of our recording this, but it did just win a special jury award for the U.S. documentary competition at Sundance, and uh, that's super awesome. Then I'm also going to speak with the director of the Persian version, which is going to come up a little bit later in this uh, episode. And the Persian version won two awards at Sundance, including the prestigious Audience Award, which is super exciting. Very cool. Very cool. Before we do that, we're going to do kind of a slightly different closed focus today, correct? That's right. Uh, we've got, so, we've been bad. We have been very bad about our listener mail. We have not been uh, keeping up with mm. telling people on the show all the stuff that we're hearing from our listeners, uh, the Facebook comments, the YouTube comments, the emails. Uh, I want to start off actually, uh, I want to start off with one in particular. Frank in Redondo wrote a very long email. Uh, here I, I, haven't, I haven't heard this one yet. It's not on the Google sheet that we're all looking at. So I'm very excited. It's not. Okay. So uh, it says, hi, Ilya. This is a question for the cinematography podcast. I'm not a cinematographer, just a film buff. And I'm curious about when a cinematographer is brought on board to a project. It often seems that a DP credit on IMDb is one of the last credits to be updated. No, I mean, like I actually had this happen uh, just last week. I was doing an interview with one of the Sundance filmmakers and the cinematographer was not listed on IMDb, but like production designer, everybody, gaffer, everybody else is there, but not cinematographer. And I'm like, what's what's wrong with this? And it's not the first time that's happened. I don't know why. Yeah, it's interesting. I can't tell you as to why or how IMDb chooses to update that information, but I do find cinematographers are listed there quite early sometimes on productions where other people are, are not listed. So so I think it's sort of a crapshoot. It's just whatever happens to, to be the answer. But getting back to uh, Frank's email here, he says he understands that each show is different and the entire industry is freelance, but he would assume that a cinematographer would be one of the earliest and most crucial production jobs uh, to get locked down. Man, you'd uh, think. You'd think. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting, though, because we've talked to some people on the show who came in and replaced people or came in super late to projects. So, you know, all kinds of things can happen. It's it's just one of those things. And then he writes, along the same lines, how does a cinematographer get paid? I'm prying into salary amounts. Is the job a weekly guarantee or a certain number of days with an increased rate if the production runs over? Is it a higher daily rate compared to other crew members? A possible reason why DPs are hired late in the game? Uh, and he goes, thanks for your consideration on my musings. And uh, first time caller, long time listener. I look <laughs> forward to every Wednesday, Frank. And I did write a, a very long, detailed uh, reply to Frank here, which I'm not going to go through and answer in the same detail. But it includes links to like, you know, local. But 600. the answer is $12. $12. That's about Flat. what <laughs> That's how they all get $12. Uh, no. <laughs> and, you know, there's a huge range. And if you're talking about commercial rates versus uh, feature rates versus television rates versus union and non-union, and ultimately at the end of the day, uh, as a freelancer, if you are fortunate enough to have an agent, it's what your agent can negotiate for you. And same thing, if you're a freelancer without an agent, it's what you can negotiate for yourself. And you have to kind of have an understanding of what going wages are in the industry in order to do that and where you fall on that ladder based on how much experience you have, what kind of credits that you have, what kind of work mm -hmm. that you do. So, you know, in a commercial, you could definitely see a DP making three to 5,000 a day. That's not uncommon. On features, it may not be that high of a day rate, but they might have a lot more days. And things can change radically. Of course, uh, for the longest time, the average freelance camera man with a camera in Los Angeles, the statistic that was bantied around was $50. You want someone on Craigslist, 
fifty dollars a day was was the going rate. So it was like, what? A, yeah, I know. I, it was really. I made, I made more than that when I was waiting tables in Orlando in the nineties. That is absolutely correct, which gives you an understanding of how many people want to do this work in Los Angeles in particular. So anyway, that was the nineties, but uh, I think maybe it's probably better now. Maybe it's gone up to eighty dollars or a hundred dollars or something <laughs> like that. But but LA wages for people just starting out in the industry who say I'm a DP. Well, yeah, yeah. just starting out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like you got to build a reel and stuff like that. But yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, like when you're just starting out, you're lucky to get paid anything. You're probably going to go do stuff, you know, pro bono or whatever to build that reel and to get the experience and to make the connections. But also you're not going to be like, uh, you know, freelance DPing uh, Avatar 3. A hundred percent. You're going to be doing <laughs> music videos, shorts, student films, films for like indie stuff. Exactly. So, Ben, let's get to some of the other questions, comments, things that we got here. Do you want to take the next one? Yeah, yeah. So, Alex Badu. Uh, this is on YouTube. Uh, yeah, it's about our interview with Lena Sondgren from Babylon. And Alex says, I love the cinematography of this film. Felt sleek, yet had a texture to it. The frames feel tangible. Linus is absolutely right when he says shooting on film makes for a more emotional experience. And uh, I very much agree. And I feel like uh, Babylon's kind of gotten the short shrift this Oscar season. And and in general, I, I think it's been overlooked because I don't know why it's been overlooked. But I think it's it's a fine piece of work. And Linus is uh, one of one of the best working cinematographers today. Agreed. Yeah. You want to take the next one? Sure. Yeah. Uh, also from YouTube, someone commented on our interview with uh, Eric Bronco for uh, Let the Right One In. This is comes from Sam Franks. He writes, such a great interview. Again, a pleasure to get such detailed insights into the world of a DP. I would love to hear some tips about how to enter the industry as a cinematographer from established DPs like Eric. Those hero lenses look amazing. I love the idea of characteristic control. I mean, I think, Sam, if you go back and listen to a lot of our episodes, we frequently, especially the first time we talk to a cinematographer, we talk about how they broke into the industry and everybody's story is completely different. <laughs> like It certainly is. And yeah, you, you will definitely find that with the first time that we talk to people. And I think I'm pretty sure that uh, I talked to Eric Bronco at length about that uh, in our first interview. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we're on a limited time frame, like we were, for instance, with Bob Richardson for the interview about emancipation. And, you know, I want to hear Bob Richardson's whole story because his work is some of my favorite ever. But uh, almost everyone, I mean, we have some great ones. People like Wally Pfister. I love his starting out story. But a lot, of, a lot of those people also are coming from an earlier time. So they're breaking in through Roger Corman or whatever. But we do have more modern people who've broken in more recently, uh, including the subject of our next question, Larkin Seipel. So Larkin Seipel, who, and we'll get to this much later, but uh, criminally underrated cinematography for everything, everywhere, all at once, stolen, should have been nominated, wasn't nominated, but I have faith that Larkin's going to be nominated one of these days. So Bill Clay says, awesome episode. Larkin is crazy fun, talented, and really funny too. That stuff about Vernon is priceless. And I got to say, it is priceless. I've spent, <laughs> I've spent some time in Vernon, uh, the city of Vernon, and it's, uh, it's, it's everything Larkin said it was and more. Larkin's just a, a brilliant, funny guy. I love Loved having him on, and I, I can't wait till he does his next thing, and we can have him on again. He's he's amazing. Yeah, it, on that uh, same episode, uh, Carl Cyborg writes: "This podcast is so criminally underrated, it's insane." Well, it is. It, sh it is a criminal offense, <laughs> and uh, I think you should alert your local authorities and uh, have people who aren't rating us higher taken away. Also, Al Green writes: "Magic going through your back catalog on my daily walk. Just got to episode fifteen which I think was about three years in. Oh, my Look, God. Looks like you put production on steroids after that, considering we're up to 178. Uh, we're, we're way over 200, actually, now. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, I know we say it a lot, but that is all the doing of our producer, Alana Cody. Holy crap. Yeah, I, I'm like afraid to go back and listen to the early episodes. Yeah. Have you listened I, to any of them? Not lately, because uh, I'm, I'm sure that I am terrible. I'm sure that <laughs> I'm not, not anywhere near as polished as I am today. And we didn't have Ben Katz back then. So that's true. That's yeah. true. I remember going back and listening to one of the original war stories, which I loved and I had edited and I was listening to it and I'm like, this is so slow and I could cut <laughs> two thirds of this out and it would be a better war story. Well, uh, I know we have a new batch of, of war stories that are in the works right now. So, Oh, sweet, sweet, sweet. So our next piece of listener mail is Don from Twitter. Don36933787. Just, Just rolls, rolls right off the, off the tongue. tongue. <laughs> right off the tongue there, Don. You stole my joke. 
<laughs> he says uh, yeah. on Twitter, I really like your podcast. Can you talk more about choice of camera and lenses? I don't think that is covered much. For example, Black Panther uses the Sony Venice. Why? And what were the good, bad points of using it? And I said, that is our standing philosophy, that miring too deep into tech won't age well. That being said, we have an upcoming interview with Maddie Lee Boutique that I think you'll enjoy. And I, I think totally that's true because because we yeah. talk about that. <laughs> we had we had just like when I saw that tweet, we had just interviewed Maddie and we really got into the weeds with lenses. And I think, you know, Maddie is someone who's like very particular about the lenses he uses and he uses them for reasons. And some DPs are less so. And it's not a value judgment one way or the other. Uh, but it was fascinating to hear Maddie kind of talk about his use of lenses and how the storytelling was informed. Well, how he informed the story storytelling rather with his selection of lenses mm -hmm. all right so let's see what's up next up here it looks like uh instagram instagram we've got christopher luigi moreland jr he wrote a lot he writes i listen to your podcast on occasion and first off i love your podcast and appreciate what you all are doing we love I'm, you christopher we do uh, i'm still learning a lot about this industry and your podcast has taught me so much I was listening to your take on Nepo Babies, and I mm. wanted to add my take on it. Okay. I can't speak for everyone, but when I talk about Nepo Babies, I'm not invalidating all the work they have done. Most of them are incredibly talented and had to work very hard to get where they're at. The reason I appreciate the internet poking fun at Nepo Babies is because many of them refuse to acknowledge that they are privileged and have had an enormous upper hand. In my opinion, that doesn't invalidate their talent, but just adds context. As someone who doesn't have family in the industry, I find it frustrating when some celebrities like to pretend that they weren't afforded more opportunities than most people. At the end of the day, they are talented and have made art and contribute to society. That is amazing, and they should be celebrated for that achievement. It is just frustrating when they pretend like they are cut from the same cloth as everybody else. Mm. You know, that's fair. That's totally fair. I think that there's a lot of people out there who, yeah, sure, they, they might start on third base and they, they hit a home run. But I think that hopefully most people it will acknowledge the, the privilege and the luck of the draw that they have uh, going in. The ones that, well, the ones that don't. Well, when you say, though, yeah, I, I yeah. just want to say anyone who works in this industry for any period of time is going to leverage anything they have. Of course. To, to get ahead, whatever that is. And of if that's course. family or a family friend or they happen to work on a project that gets a little heat or whatever it is they do. Me personally, my father was Bozo the Clown in Orlando in and, the early 70s. So I am a Nepo baby. So I, I really I really have no, no uh, ground to stand on because my father was a local kids show host on uh, a local television affiliate. Well, well you're 100%. And, it, you know, it's not like Obama's daughter who's now getting into Hollywood. It's not like, you know, she's like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to play the president's daughter's card. So, no, she she's uh, I, I understand that she's got a production company. It's a whole it's a whole thing. I a friend of mine who's a, an editor when he was an assistant editor, she came to observe him years ago. I think Obama was still in, in office. And like, you know, so she's like, I mean, putting in the hours, whatever. Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. I, I just feel like everybody who ever succeeded in showbiz got some kind of an angle at some point and exploited it. And if that was their family or that was, you know, they happened to be the only person at the uh, at the shop when somebody came by looking for someone to pull focus or whatever, they all got in because of some uh, stupid accident. This industry doesn't want anyone in it. And when you get in, it's an accident a hundred percent of the time, everyone working in this industry is working here by accident and, uh, and we're holding on by our fingernails. <laughs> it, it certainly feels that way for an awful lot of people all the time, including people who have won uh, major awards. I, I have to share a, uh, I was in First Entertainment Credit Union, which anyone in Los Angeles who works in the entertainment industry is probably familiar with. It is sort of like the credit union for the freelancers. And uh, this guy just ahead of me in line had his Emmy Award on the counter. And I was like, is that your second form of ID? And the guy turned around and laughed and stuff. We had a little joke about it. He's like, he's like, you wouldn't believe how difficult it is to prove that you work in the industry for this credit union. And I was like, I understand exactly how difficult it is because everyone else here in line had to do the same thing. We just weren't fortunate enough to have an Emmy award on the counter when we yeah. showed up. So, I anyway. just had my cable ace award. All right, let's go on, let's go on to the next, uh, the next uh, piece of listener mail. It's from Facebook. It's uh, Josh Clutterbuck, who I believe you remember and uh, we yeah. talked to you before. Uh, I did the last one. Do you want to dive into Josh here? Do you want to? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. 
Hey guys, listen to the podcast today and have to say pretty humbled by your insights and thoughts on my message. You've given me a lot to think about and I truly appreciate the discussion and honesty you both shared. Even more amazing was that it was featured on the show with Lachlan Milne, who I'm a huge fan of. Thanks again. It's given me some fresh perspectives to think on. Then we have a follow up. up. Yeah, look at that. In uh, February of 2022. Two, so almost a year ago. Hey guys, I just wanted to reach out again. It's been a year since I last messaged you and I couldn't thank you enough for the time you put in discussing my situation. Your podcast is still a highlight. After much consideration, I changed my mind about four times before realizing life is too short and I needed to change. So here I am recovering from COVID, sorry, Ugh. and a fortnight out from having quit my job of 12 years and a month away from starting film school. All right. Something that stuck in my head was not having to make your passion your nine to five, which really made me consider I should make time for that passion. But the way things were was it was never going to happen. I was starving myself creatively and I needed a change to allow time to explore the options possible. Again, the podcast has been so important for me to remind me of all the wonderful things film and screen provides people in life. Though I know there is a lot of hard work ahead and long unpaid hours, but why be stuck working for an organization you hate just to be comfortable? Thanks again, guys. Well, I would love to hear from Josh what he is up to now. So, Josh, if you are, are hearing the sound of our voice, please let us know if you went through with it, how film school is probably. Yeah, yeah probably with, yeah, still there. Probably still there. What school? Get a plug in. We'll, we'll plug you on the show. Uh, okay, and then I think the last bit of uh, listener mail we got here, actually, it's a review on Apple Podcasts. And hey, if you like this podcast, please, you know, review us on Apple Podcasts, review us in some of the places where you can do reviews. It, it does help our show. It helps us, you know, with sponsors. It helps us with notoriety. It helps us, uh, you know, people judge us on on those reviews. So this re- five-star review came in on Apple Podcasts uh, from Clark Washington. It says, great insights, exclamation point. Uh, I'm not in the industry at all. Just a movie dork and love all aspects, especially how movies look. Anyway, always interesting guests and love when they get inside baseball about the creative process. Lenses and the rants. Thanks, guys. That was great. Thanks, Clark. Uh, That was a a wonderful review. I don't need encouragement to go into more rants, but yes, thank you. (laughs) All right. So let's get to our interview. Let's get to the interview with the creative team from Bad Press. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Uh, I am joined by the creative team from the new movie Bad Press, which is uh, premiering at Sundance 2023. Uh, With me is Tyler Grain, the director of photography and producer, uh, Rebecca Lansbury-Baker, who's a co-director and producer, as well as Joe Peeler, who is the co-director and co-editor. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Did I say all your names correctly? Yeah. All right. Great. Hey, because most people will not have seen Bad Press, please give the, uh, you know, the 30 second synopsis of what the movie's all about. So I am a a member of the Muskogee Creek Nation, a fellow like citizen. And so our movie focuses on the fight for freedom of the press in my tribe, the Muskogee Creek Nation. So in Indian country, there are only five tribes out of 574 that have free press. And so we follow the journalists fight for free press, Um, the Muskogee Creek Nation, which is based in Oklahoma on the reservation. Uh, you know, it's not just the fight for the free press. You actually delve into a very deep and long running ongoing story involving, you know, the political leadership and the battles that go on inside the newspaper, as well as the uh, the real incredible constitutional ratification uh, amendment to ratify the free press. How did you decide to get involved in, in this particular story and, and how did this uh, this project come to be? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, I am a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. I was born and raised on the reservation and I'm a former tribal media journalist and tribal media editor. So these are my people. The participants in our film are former colleagues and friends and members of my community that, you know, we've worked with and face these issues that are very, you know, nuanced and specific to journalists who cover Indian country and are covering their own native communities. And so, you know, having been a part of some of the censorship and faced that, I was just really excited to, you know, not only share the story and their like struggle and the challenges that they are facing, but also 
highlight the humor that's here in our story and among the Muscogee journalists and among the indigenous communities, you know, more generally. So there's just so much diversity and so much humor in our communities. And so, you know, we have these really important issues that we're dealing with. We're um, dealing with uh, elections. We're following an election season. So there's all of these things happening that the journalists are trying to keep up with and covering this. And they're also being censored and dealing with transparency and access issues, but doing that in a very funny way and using humor to, you know, cope with the stress of all of these different issues, you know, that we explore in the film. So again, I don't think people always expect there to be humor in, um, you know, some of these issues that we're covering, but it's a really important um, element of our film that I'm so excited as a member of the community to highlight. Yeah, you know, I, I got to say that um, you don't shy away from the humor, which which is wonderful. It could have so easily been like, oh, this is serious. But, you know, I, I felt like all the people who are in this, their personalities really come through. And I'm really glad that it I mean, I think it would have been disingenuous to remove all that. But to leave all that in, I think, makes uh, everyone so relatable. And really, you want to hear about the shit stirring asshole. It's like you want to hear <laughs> like, you know, you want to hear all that, that. And I'm sorry, this is the, the insider gag in, from the movie. But I. I got to say that it's like that is kind of the magic of your project, I would say. Like, I think that there is um, there's a parable here that you can say that this story is so timely and absolutely reflects national struggles that are going on in the press and fake news, uh, not only in this country, but in places like Brazil and, and all over the world right now. And this story, in some ways, is almost a microcosm of the same embattlement that's happening with online news and press. And as you're going through and telling your story, were you constantly feeling the connection to the the larger sort of world struggles with the freedom of the press and media right now? I think definitely. But I think we we kind of made a conscious choice early on to let the audience make those connections in the exact way that you're making those connections. Like we don't ever say the words like Trump presidency or fake news or anything like that in the film. But it was so apparent while we were filming the parallels. It was almost shocking. You would, because part of the Muskogee Creek Nation election was taking place during the Democratic election at, on the national level. And so you would get Bloomberg on the national level would enter the race. And then we'd have a person in the Muskogee Creek Nation who has more money than any of the other candidates and seemingly is trying to do the same exact thing. And you just look at it and think like, I, we couldn't have written this uh, to parallel so well. Joe, how did you and Rebecca uh, connect? How, uh, have you guys worked together before? Uh, well, I'm actually friends with Becca's husband and our, our other producer, Garrett. And Garrett and Becca kind of came to me after the repeal of the Free Press Act and didn't want to see the story swept under the rug, I think. And Becca obviously has the background in journalism and the connections to the community. And I have a career in documentary filmmaking, primarily as an editor. And so we thought if we joined forces, there could be the potential to keep this story, to get this story out to the public and really keep it from being squashed by the tribal government. And they came to me on a Monday and Wednesday, we <laughs> Skyped with Angel. Angel Ellis is a uh, journalist that we follow at Muskogee Media who sticks around after the tribal media outlet is effectively decimated by the repeal of the Free Press Act uh, when they're put under the control of the tribal government to effectively put out propaganda. And we pinged Angel and I was on a flight by Friday and I was shooting over the weekend and it was kind of off to the races and that kicked off. We're coming up on our, we're going to pre be premiering about a month prior to our four year anniversary. Wow. So, yeah. Well, no one ever said documentaries were quick. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Original plan was to like have it out uh, in 2020 to play in the election. But yeah, I just want on, to add to that note. I just think, you know, Joe and I make such a great team as directors and with the connection to the story, of course, I had that, but Joe, I feel like was able to make it cinematic and beautiful. And of course, with Ty's expertise as the DP, just such a beautiful film that captures a place that's like so personal to me and capture like my home so beautifully. So I'm very thankful to have the team's expertise uh, behind me. 
Well, let's bring Tyler into this conversation, too. Uh, Tyler Graham is uh, sitting right next to you, and uh, he's the cinematographer for this project. And uh, Tyler, how did you get hooked up with everyone? How did how did this come to be for you? <laughs> um, Joe likes to say that, uh, he, you know, he shot for the... <laughs> I don't know, how long did you shoot? I think I shot for like four or five months. Yeah, and, um, and there was one shoot that was in the middle of the summer in the heat, and he said it just broke him. <laughs> and... Uh, he was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they started looking for a DP. And um, Joe and I have worked together in the past. I shot a bit on his previous film. And um, also, we've made a few music videos together. So I think we had a shorthand already. And it was super easy to collaborate like right away. And then Becca's just like, so amazing to work with and <laughs> took no time you know to get like the team used to each other so yeah that's how i got started so you're saying uh, you got the gig because of weather so you know <laughs> yeah you try, you yeah, try yeah. tracking an election in the middle of the summer in oklahoma and <laughs> sweating your ass off and, try, and running down an election with 10 candidates yeah i was just like i'm not built for this <laughs> Yeah. Well, I just like knowing Joe, like in his background too, like, I think he's, he's the type of director that like, just really wants to have his eyes visually on what's mm -hmm. happening and stuff. And so I think to be able to do that from a monitor and not be thinking about f-stop and exposure and all these other things, you know, it's just so valuable. And so I think that was like, <laughs> very necessary. You know, you know, I described this film as a microcosm, uh, sort of of the, you know, the, the larger world that's out there. But really, it, this is not a this is not a particularly small story. And I felt like there's a lot of concurrent action that's going on. There's a lot of things happening simultaneously. You know, Tyler, how did you decide that you wanted to cover this? Or was were you always like uh, following, you know, one of your your main characters, uh, one of the main subjects of the story? Or what was your guide to decide what needed to be covered where? How did you how did you really approach this? Yeah, I mean, the most complicated section was the election, for sure. Clearly, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that we had to bring on most, almost all the movie was just one camera, except for that sequence. Um, and we just knew, like, for this to have tension and, like, action, and we just knew we had to be in all those places, because we didn't know what was going to happen either. So I just think it was, like... We all knew that we had to do that and we just scraped together to figure out, okay, we need two more operators and we brought people out and um, Joe was one of them actually, yeah. <laughs> again. Um, Drafted yeah. in the service. <laughs> yeah, but I think it like really adds to like the frenetic feel of that scene and uh, totally worth it. We wanted one camera for most of it because we just... We did want that, like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like cinematic quality to it and to be able to, like, add some drama in certain places and really focus on framing and shot selection and camera movement in those places. But, like, it's a documentary, so you really have to, like, let the story guide you, too. And so for those moments, it's like, okay, this isn't going to be, like, perfect, but we are going to get all the coverage we need. And it built the scene the way we wanted to. There's a bunch of wonderful inserts and close-ups and bits that I feel are peppered throughout the entire movie. How do you go about choosing that, like, what could be, I think for some people, seem like inconsequential B-roll, but it's never inconsequential in this movie. It always feels like it's it's adding something to, to further the explanation of who a subject or, you know, is and, and their character or what's going on. How are you picking that out? Is it, uh, I've heard the reality folks say, like, oh, spray and pray, you just shoot it all. But uh, that's <laughs> clearly not what you guys are doing. It's very, very detailed stuff and sometimes it's wonderful when you have someone who who decides to point out like a particular detail like an autographed portrait of wrestler rick flair but you yeah. know uh other times it's not that and you guys are picking up these wonderful pieces and bringing them in there how does that come to be what's your slot excuse me shot selection for what could be just kind of like the cutaway b-roll it, it doesn't ever feel like that in this movie well, I think like there was a lot of thought put into exploring the environment to find that interesting shot of the Volkswagen bug graveyard, you know, or the, and we would be traveling around a huge chunk of the state. And so the one that comes to mind is uh, Angel is kind of giving this monologue and uh, the trees passing by the car seem to fill the frame and get more and more crazy and become like this kind of expressionistic blur. And that was like, 
hours of driving around <laughs> shooting. And it wasn't like we were shooting it for a specific story beat. It was just that we were kind of going around and noticing that this was happening and we would try to catch it as we could. And so we'd get really interested in these little bits of like Oklahoma life and try to go capture those things. But a lot of the time that would be, we'd sit, we'd go and drive out to a location and shoot there for, you know, an hour, two hours. And what you see in the film is edited down to, you know, the five second shot or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, and like speaking to that too, I think like from the beginning, a huge push was to make the viewer feel what it's like to be on the Skokie Creek Nation Reservation and feel what it's like to be in Oklahoma in the summer, really kind of fill the frame with those colors and feelings and like show it how it is. One thing, one, uh, some of the B-roll that's in there that I think we're super proud of is um, there's it's filled with new, like macro shots of newspapers. And we use that as a storytelling device, but we, um, we shot all of those practically like in camera, none of them are um, graphics and all the transitions between them are all practical too. And I think it just adds so much texture to the movie. You can just feel it. Like when you're on, <laughs> when you're so close on a newspaper that you're filling the frame with one word, you can like feel the pulp and the ink and, I'm so glad we did that. It really paid off. Uh, You'll have to forgive my ignorance here because I I was unaware of the story before the documentary, but after the codification of uh, a free press in the uh, Muscogee Creek Nation, have there been similar movements that are starting up in other tribes to try to do the same? Is Is that happening? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my other, my full-time gig as the executive director of the Native American Journalists Association. So we track the issue of free press in Indian country, and we are definitely seeing, you know, the impact of the Muscogee Creek Nation story on Indian country. And so I know there's at least one other tribe that's pursuing, you know, a constitutional amendment and that will come before a vote of the people. But yeah, I really hope this sparks a movement and really lays out a blue blueprint for all of Indian country to say like this issue is really important and it ultimately free press supports tribal sovereignty because it provides a mechanism for accountability between the citizens and their government and so we see how important being an engaged and informed voter and citizen is in Indian country and so again very hopeful that uh, this is the beginning of something that will have a really big impact for Indian country definitely already seeing the beginnings of that. That That's wonderful because I, I think that there's probably is no better weapon to preventing corruption than a free press. And I got to say that corruption happens on every level, every level everywhere. And having real journalism with a Hippocratic oath to, you know, tell the truth and to do no harm as you're going through this and the journalistic eye that you, you bring to this documentary is very neutral. You're never putting a judgment on, but you have, you know, these wonderful subjects. So your intention is clear. But how does it feel as a filmmaker to in the moment, be realizing that you are uncovering or revealing corruption, revealing corrupt motivations, you're re- revealing corrupt policies. How does that feel at the moment when you're getting it and you're like, you, you know you're getting it? What is the uh, visceral reaction, I would say, as the filmmaker? How does that feel to exposing corruption? I would say as a citizen, it was exciting and really rewarding to have our cameras in the room for, you know, these votes happening at the legislative level. I, you know, I think that because we were there documenting this story, I don't know how, you know, I think that there may have been votes that had turned out differently if we weren't in the room, you know, making sure that people were going to see this and be telling this story. So I, I can't definitively say that, but I can say, you know, I was very proud as a citizen to have that impact at that level to be able to document this moment. And I think that we probably had some, you know, influence in that again, like we're providing a layer of transparency that, you know, has never been seen before in the Muscogee Creek Nation. So I like to think that we had <laughs> maybe some influence on some of those votes, but yeah, you guys. Yeah, I think it was the way that it felt was surprising a lot of the times, because I think that there's many subjects in the film who are hiding uh, corruption or don't want something to come out, but there are equal, if not more subjects in the film who are ready to talk about whatever you want to hear about. And we'd be in an interview 
and someone would say something that was revelatory or explained some backroom vote that we didn't know about. And that was always surprising in the moment, just to see how open the, the people who aren't hiding anything would be to the camera. So that was really exciting on the ground, I think, kind of understanding it. Also, we make no, I think, as you'll see if uh, viewers watch the movie, I think there was a point in the movie where we thought we were making a mystery. We were thought we were going to make a, make a, why did the free press get repealed? And we were going to figure it out. And really that's not the structure of the film at all. It becomes very apparent why it was repealed. And that was because everyone knew and it was kind of an open secret. And so that was also surprising. We kind of went in with this conception of we're going to, we're going to uncover, you know, we're going to find out all this uh, stuff that's happening behind the scenes but it was so apparent that the story changed because of it. And so even that was surprising at the beginning of the process. Tell me about how you put this together from a cinematography and maybe a, an editing standpoint. Uh, you know, this is not, doesn't look like a typical documentary. It, it definitely has style. That is sort of the battle that every good documentarian is fighting against. They don't want to just like, I got to capture this. So I'm going to give myself the easiest opportunity possible and just shoot this as wide as possible in case anything happens. I've got it. How are you like you, you do use a lot of long lenses. Do you ever pull out a second camera for some of this stuff or are you just willing that, you know, if we miss the shot, we miss the shot? How do you, uh, you know, justify that? Almost all of it was one camera, except for those sequences where we really needed to cover multiple places. But yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of that is we'll pick up an insert afterwards if we need it. But like, you know, we want to stay on our main character. Like she's the star here. And like, this is who we want to stick with and then find the inserts later. But I think one thing was like, from my perspective is like, okay, like there's going to be a lot of verite in this movie. You know, it's what makes it great. But like, you can't really control those scenes necessarily in certain ways, but then finding the places where you can control the look of the film was like really important. When we first started, Joe just kind of like started talking about all these movies <laughs> that he was <laughs> referring to. And we kind of just started talking about them as like newspaper movies. Yeah, I feel like All the President's Men was one that was like always stuck in my head and kind of like, I guess just not letting yourself be like, well, it's just a documentary. Like we can't look at narrative films for reference. Like, I think that was really important for us to just be like, no, we can and we can like make those choices. And I feel like we really did that in post too. like I've been shooting those inserts of B-roll in my garage for like three years and like I, we were just <laughs> we were doing it like all the way up until Sundance like finding the right the right newspaper headlines the right things we needed for the story and so like that's another moment where I felt like we were able to control the look um, and give it kind of an elevated feel uh, well mission accomplished I think it, that it really comes through and 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 good job on all of that thanks Anyway, is there an official website for the film if people want to find more information or track your progress or if not a website, social media of some sort? Not yet, but uh, <laughs> you can track our social media. We're hashtag bad press film and that's all over Instagram right now. All right. Fa fantastic. Well, creative team from Bad Press, thank you so much for being here. This is this was a lot of fun. I'm really glad that uh, you could spare a few minutes to sit down and talk about the movie and uh, best of luck at Sundance. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yep. All right. So that was the creative team of Bad Press, uh, including director Rebecca Lansbury Baker, uh, co-director and, and also co-editor mm -hmm. Joe Peeler, and then also cinematographer and producer Tyler Graham. Thanks so much for being on the show. Loved the movie and congratulations on the award. I can't wait to see what happens with this movie and uh, where it goes in the world. I really hope that uh, a lot of people see it. I'm excited to see it myself. Okay, up next is Mariam Keshavars, the director of the Persian version, which just won the Audience Award and also a Screenwriting Award uh, at Sundance 2023. And here is the interview. Here we go. Mariam Keshavars, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having me. You've got a new movie, which just premiered at the Sundance 2023 Film Festival called the Persian Version. Tell us a little bit about your movie. The Persian Version is about a young woman, Iranian-American, named Layla, who returns home to Jersey 
when her father is having a heart transplant, when uh, her mother and seven siblings are at the hospital and she's asked to take care of her grandmother, who's here from Iran. She has a very tough relationship with her mother. And through the process of taking care of her grandmother, she finds out that the reason her family came to America was not what she thought. In fact, her parents were escaping scandal. So the story retraces the mother's story through three different decades in an effort for the writer-director, Layla, to understand what the scandal is. And through that process, she realizes that maybe she's not as different from her mother than she thinks. And it's a comedy. (laughs) Most importantly, it's fun. It's about growing up in a very big Iranian-American family in New York in a brownstone with one bathroom and seven brothers. So I have to know from what's been uh, written and said about the movie so far that this is semi-autobiographical or it's a, it's a there, right. there's a lot of your own uh, or life more into than this. Semi depends what you, how you look at it. <laughs> so so uh, I guess I want to ask you, was it? Uh, yes, I own a Burkettini. Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yes. That, I, did, that, I did make that, that by hand. That, that, that was, that was my sewing. first question. Was, was, abso- was absolutely, if you had a burka bikini combination, you called yes. the burkettini. No, uh, we're, it's, what I, <laughs> it's, it's offensive and I did do it. <laughs> well, what you really wanted to get into was the, the decision to tell a personal family story in, in this way. Is that scandalous uh, for, for you? Is it, was it cathartic for you? What, what's the process like of getting into all of like, you know, your family's stuff and, and granted it's dressed up. It's not, you know, you're not saying like, hey, this is me per se, but how does drawing on your real life and putting it into uh, a work of fiction, how, how does that, how's that process for you? You know, I think much of the story is quite true, but obviously we have to have a narrative form. You have to have a characters fully fleshed and it has to be contained within two hours. So I think you take artistic liberties also to make it more funny and whatnot. But I think there's so much story when you have come from a big family or from any family. So how do you harness that into two hours? I think for me, it was really understanding that although these two women live amongst a lot of men and a huge family, it really was their story. And it really was a question of, even the concept of storytelling, who has the right to tell stories. And the lead character is a writer-director and she's narrating and trying to understand the scandal. And at some point, the mother interrupts the story and takes over the story. Um, that was a really big moment for me because as I was thinking of, when in the writing process, I started to analyze who my mother was and all of the secrets. And I realized many ways we're reflections of each other. She herself is a writer, but in a different way. She rewrote her destiny coming to America. She had a new narrative. She left behind the old narrative and she created totally from a new, a new identity. So once I was able to crack that concept in the writing process, I very much knew that it was a story of these two, actually in some ways, three women, three generations, but it was a a story to be told in these, in these ways. And so, you know, everything was in service of their relationship and of trying to understand the narrative through line. But if you really think about it, the story takes place overnight. Even though it goes back and forth through decades, it essentially takes place in a span of nine months, which was the framing device of the film. So, you, I mean, as a writer, you have to, even if you have so much material, you have to have a very particular framing device for the audience to follow the story. So it had went through many drafts, the script, <laughs> before we ever shot it. And then also, you know, we have to create a cohesion between different eras and very much the philosophy of the film is that there is not really a differentiation in time between the present and the past in many ways, that they are continuously affecting each other. And so if you notice, there's not any like different lensing in the what we consider the long flashback sequences. It's not treated in any other way, except for that the production design, obviously in the hair and stuff is different, but it was very important to me that they be feel continuous in its treatment. There's only a slight shift of colors very very small uh, there may only be aesthetically a, the, some small shifts like that but you bring up the long extended flashback of uh, the mother and i definitely felt there was a tonal shift though yes, it didn't it, yes. it doesn't it doesn't feel like the like necessarily the same movie you're you're looking at something that looks like right. the same movie but it's almost as if you made two or three different movies here and kind of amalgamed exactly. them all together exactly yeah Exactly. That's true. The thing is, there's no differentiation in time. So when the daughter is telling the story of the 80s and 90s, it's her narrative arc. And so there's no differentiation lensing or the way that the story 
is told. But there's essentially three narrators in the story. It's the mother, the grandmother, and the daughter. So the daughter has one type of storytelling, right? It's like very fast-paced, very indicative of her age. She's in her 20s. It's, you know, the grandmother's is over the top. It's like a Western. It's larger than life, like the grandmother. And then the mother's is much more nuanced. It's much more internal. It's much more reflective, much like the character is. So I very much, we thought of how we tell the story. They're almost like slightly different genres within the film because each character, we let the character lead the type of genre, you know, or how we shot it and even the editing process. So if you notice like with the daughter, it's much more fast paced editing with the grandmother, these like epic shots and slow-mos and guns and even the music, right? The music is like indicative of a Western. And then the mother's is, is much more silent. It's much more reflective. It's, you know, very much from the point of view also of the young version of herself, right? The, the 14-year-old girl in that era. It's more classic in some ways, what we consider maybe classic Iranian cinema even. So it was very intentional that all the storytellers have their own style. It's reflective of who they are. You know, I can't help but think that the protagonist in this is in some ways got to be very reflective of who you are. And I want to talk a little bit about you then as as the filmmaker behind <laughs> am, this. Am I that sarcastic? Do I have, do I curse that much? Okay. I, 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 so. you, you and I <laughs> no. only just met. So, so I, 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 did I throw any bugs in that to make it authentic. <laughs> they were like, can you make this PG-13? I was like, well, one scene has four or five fucks. I think that already disqualifies me. <laughs> Uh, well, the protagonist refers to herself as being an over overeducated and having two master's degrees. And I looked yeah. at your bio just before uh, the, the oh, Zoom well, call, and I was like, oh, look at you. You also have a couple of master's degrees, went to yeah, film man. school. You know, look, I, I want I want to ask you, I don't really feel like it's, it's much of a debate. I also went to film school. I think that uh, film school is a wonderful thing. But there are people these days that seem to be like uh, almost, I want to say proudly, proudly, I didn't go to film school. Film school wasn't part of my story. Hey, I almost it, got thrown out of film school. Does that count? (laughs) Absolutely. But I I was just, where do you come down on uh, for the people out there who are maybe starting their career? How important for you is, was film school? Does film school matter much in your, in your journey as a filmmaker? I think for me at that particular time, it was important. Again, I I would never have gone to, I want a full scholarship to go to NYU. And that was really important. I I wouldn't have gone to film school if I was going to go into $300,000 of debt. And I've, that's been my practical mode of existence my entire life. Debt was not a way to like survive in this country. But I, I for me, it was just a space because I had transitioned so hard out of academia into something very different. So I, I use it more as a space of reflection, as a place. Even, even when they interviewed me, they said, why do you want to go to NYU? I said, well, why should I go to NYU? Mm. I don't need to go to school to make films. And they're like, this girl's so obnoxious. We love her. But the reality is, I don't think you need to go to film school. For me in particular, I like that space. I just wanted some time to reflect and some to think of who I would be and what was important to me as an artist. And it was also a way for me to go home because I had been living in California. I grew up in New York. It was an opportunity for me to come home to New York and spend some time there for a couple of years. So in that way, it was special. And I got to make a lot of friends, but you don't have to go to film school. I actually... I'm often on the people call me, they've been accepted. Should they go? Should they not go? And I think it has to fit into a, a greater idea of what's important to you. I really, I think being in debt is the single worst thing that a filmmaker can do. Like having to pay, I have tons of friends who are so talented, but they have to pay $2,000 a month towards their loans. How can, they, you know, they can't do the jobs that they want to do. I've been fortunate that I never had loans. And so I never had to, t- you know, I was able to pursue directing full time, even during hard times, I didn't have to pay any loans. So I think it's important just to surround yourself around around like-minded people. As I've gone around in my career, I've met lots of people through different avenues, through film festivals, through parties, and we've collaborated together. Film school is a place to meet people and collaborate, but you can do that in so many different ways. It doesn't have to be film school. If you're passionate and you want to do something, if you are compelled, because it's such a hard business, if anyone can convince you not to make films, then it's not for you. You know, like I think like you have to be semi crazy to be a filmmaker because all you get is no's like 99% of the time. And my brother's always like, I don't get it. You wrote a script, but no one paid you to write it. Like, yeah, but try to get it financed. I think to them, like to regular people, this seems completely insane, but it's, we're compelled to do it. Right. So I feel, I always say, 
if anyone can talk you out of it, it's not for you. But if you're passionate and you feel you have to do it, you'll find a way. And there's so many different ways to get to that place. I think it's also a craft and I think you have to just keep working at it. It's not, it's not like a one-off. It takes a lot of practice to get better. In that I agree, but you said something I disagree with, which is you have to be semi-crazy. I think you have to be fully crazy. You can't <laughs> actually, you can't <laughs> well, actually you just be, be semi- you, have, you have to have a little bit of sanity to actually do the things that requires because the reality is, for instance, I always, I, I teach sometimes at NYU and I say, you have to be so prepared for that day that it happens, right? You operate on the idea that it will happen. Does that mean just a script? No. It means a lookbook. It means a tone book. It means a book on costumes. These are all things you can do to be so prepared the day that it happens. But also, these are ways to convince people that you know what you're doing and that you've thought of every element of the story. And you could constantly be working towards that. Like for my first film, I think I worked four years from, or maybe three years from the time I went to the Sundance Lab to the time that I shot took three years, but I was always making books. And I was like, you know, pitching the books and the, the, the look, even the graf- down to the graffiti that would be on the walls, every element of what you think will be visual and the storytelling that will help a reader translate is particularly if it's your first film, they don't know what kind of chops you have, you know, and to translate the script to the visuals. So important. I think I always tell my, when I teach, I'm like, the director's book, the lookbook's the most, one of the most important elements, even more than the script, because they won't even read the script unless they see that. Uh, you first came on my radar in uh, 2011, as, as I think for a lot of people with uh, circumstance. I, I was also at uh, Sundance that year. Uh, I had a tertiary relationship to a movie called Like Crazy. And yeah, I remember a lot of people, there was a lot of buzz and people talking about circumstance. Uh, plot your journey for, for me a little bit here, because uh, I know you then went on to direct for the television series Big Sugar. You made another movie. You worked with Kira Kelly. I saw that too, actually. He's yeah. a big, fr- big yeah. uh, friend of our show. What circuitous route have you taken to get to this point right now because you're kind of you're back at Sundance you're back at Sundance right. all, all these years later with it with an autobiographical movie how did I get back here yeah how is this going how is this <laughs> going, going back for to you your origins yeah it's it seems like so appropriate you know because I made my first film and then I thought oh you win Sundance and you get a big distribution deal like that's it you're you're done it's you're like, done. No, not as a woman sorry <laughs> ground zero for you uh then I there's like getting all this nothing and it's like okay I'm gonna write my own scripts then I wrote a script that almost got made and then that star fell out. And then I was like, while I was waiting for that person, I wrote another script, which became Viper Club. So there was another script that I wrote that was financed that was supposed to happen. And as I was waiting for the actress, I wrote a new script that was supposed to be lower budget. And then that first one fell apart. And then right away I went into Viper Club. And in between, I sold lots of original scripts to TV to pay the bills. But I think, you know, my last film, I didn't have a lot of control over the film and it was... You know, I worked with stars. They were amazing, but it wasn't the way I like to work. There was not a sense of family on my set. There wasn't a sense of people being invested like deeply, emotionally. It felt like my last film was more like a job. Mm, yeah, yeah. I would always be told, oh, this isn't Miriam. This is in film school. Like to be, people would be condescending to me. This is real life. And I was like, no, real life is whatever we make it. This is not the feeling I want on set and not in my post-process. So I really, and I want to have hundred percent control. So I was saying to my agent, when, if I make this film, I only want to make it in a certain way. I want to make it a with complete or near complete artistic control. Otherwise I can't do it because it's so personal. And more than anything, when I was, ca- you know, I have a huge cast, like 90 speaking roles, but the main cast was like 24, 20 people. When I was casting, I looked for two or three things. One was authenticity of experience. Like where were you born? What's your life experience? Two, obviously, talent and language skills. But three, your ability to give up the ego and be part of a family. And that's because rehearsal was a big part of my film. We were cast, but it, on our days off, we would rehearse and rewrite the scripts and make it more fun, you know, like make it feel like a family. And I'm the most proud of people really feeling like this is a family. I see the film and I feel like it's a family. And everyone came here to Sundance. 14 people came to Sundance. We were all staying in a house together, cooking and laughing and dancing. And it was just like the movie and people came to our party. It's like, it's like being in your movie. It's because I wanted to recreate that feeling. When I made Circumstance, I made it with friends and family. The producers in Lebanon, they put themselves at risk. The Turkish producers in this project put themselves at risk. Films are meaningful for people from our part of the world. They're not just a business, you know? We believe that it can change society. It's reflective of our society. 
it has its artistic element to our society. It holds a, a bigger place maybe in our hearts, in our in our political views, in our social views. So I just did never want to make a film again that was just business, quote unquote. I wanted something special. And so it's perfect that I come back home to Sundance because I made this film, although much bigger than my first film in scope. The scope is bigger, but the heart is the same. It's really about family on every element of the filmmaking process. From my crew, to my cast, to my producers, everyone, I really treated it like a family. Uh, you and I must be contemporaries because uh, I really appreciate the photo that you chose for your the Sundance catalog and for <laughs> my, your website. A, that was two bottles of Aquanet. And <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to guess it must be from around 88 89 something Very like that, good. Is that you called it, it out yeah. exactly. well hey My look, look in high we're, we're both gen <laughs> x so you know it's like I, I i remember those days really really well you clearly are not taking yourself too seriously to the point where you're like you you know you're not gonna you put that up there uh, i think it's wonderful that you <laughs> He's have referring a, to a bit my my high school freshman photo where i have ginormously big hair it's the year i moved to new jersey and i tried to fit in by having the biggest possible hair i would say a full foot in the air and two bottles of hairspray later. And, you know, I was going to say, I think that the photo that people choose actually as for the, for the director's bio uh, says something about them also as a director. Do you, do you agree? Do you think that the, that's a good representation of, of you as uh, also sort of yes. like your professional, <laughs> your professional uh, face forward? I think, I think so. I think honestly, as many people have said, she said, this is the first film I see that I really feel you, your humor and your sarcasm and your worldview and your forgiveness and yeah, I think maybe I'm just at a place where I can't necessarily take myself too seriously. I'm serious, but I think we need to look inside and laugh at ourselves. And I think that's the greatest gift we can give ourselves is to really take down those barriers and be able to laugh at ourselves. It's kind of a liberating experience. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Miriam, is there a uh, official website or home for the Persian version? It's marrakeshfilms.com. That's my website, M-A-R-A-K-E-S-H films. And on Instagram, it's the TPV film, which is the Persian version of the TPV film on Instagram. Uh, Miriam Kashivar, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. We'll talk again. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So that was Mariam Keshavar's of the Persian version. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. I can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah. Excited to see the film. And now, short ends. All right. So, Ben, now that we're uh, through with all of our listener mail and our interviews, it's time for short ends. What is your obsession this week? What are you watching, listening to? What is what's it about? Well, when we recorded our host wraps last week, the next day they announced the Academy Awards and it didn't, mm. it, it feels a little bit old newsy to make it our close focus at the beginning, but I feel like I want to talk about the uh, Oscar nominations for Best Cinematography. But before I do, I want to ask you a trivia question. Ooh, ooh, I'm ready. Who is the first recipient of the Best Cinematography Oscar from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences ever? I'll even tell you what year it was. Oh my God. Uh, okay, what year was it? 1928. Oh my God. Uh, let's see. I, I wouldn't have answered this I, either. I bet nobody who's ever been on the show could answer this. Hmm, 1928. First, first best cinematography recipient. I, yeah, I feel like it's something I should know. We, it was we should all know be it. something. This is something uh, both of us should know, and I didn't know it. I, I, do, I don't know. Well, Who it's, it's not the, a name that I would have known either. It's uh, Charles Rocher. Oh, and okay. he won the very first Best Cinematography Oscar for a movie called Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Oh, Sunrise. Of course. I, I should know that. I know Sunrise. Sunrise is incredible. So absolutely amazing movie. Uh, yeah. Charles Rocher, of and course. Tra and I, Charles Rocher, by the way, not around anymore, obviously. No. Uh, but he didn't die that long ago. He died in 1974. So he made it to the ripe old age of 88 and uh, he shot, if you look him up, he shot tons of stuff. Uh, he won or was nominated for several Oscars. Some of them are ones that you would have heard of. Uh, he won Best Cinematography in 1935 for a movie called The Affairs of Cellini. Uh, he got a nomination in 1945 for a film called Kismet. His last nomination was uh, 1952 for Showboat. 
So Oh, all right. <laughs> he also shot Andy Get Your Gun. He shot The Yearling. Zigfield Follies. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty pretty amazing career. Yeah. If you look him up, he's got an amazing career. So I figured I would stuff that education down our throats and then get to who the nominees <laughs> and, were. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna chime in here. If you've never seen Sunrise, absolutely worth seeing. Beautiful, beautiful movie. But you can't call the cinematographer on the phone. He hasn't been answering no, since nineteen seventy four. No, he actually, he did a, it looks like Moulin Rouge in 1934, yeah. a, a version of the movie I've never seen. So Wow. So the nominations for Best Cinematography came in again, as I said, last week, a day after we recorded our host wraps. And I'm always interested to see who we've interviewed, because obviously we've been scrambling to interview the people who were likely to be nominated. And I, I will die on the hill of Larkin Seipel should have been nominated, and he's not. But you can't really argue with the people who were nominated. So... It is All Quiet on the Western Front, James Friend. Bar- that makes sense, yeah. Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, Darius yeah. Kanji. I mean... He's good. Dar- <laughs> that that, that guy might good. have a future. Yeah. Darius Kanji is uh, definitely on our white whale list of people we would love to talk to. We, lo- we love his work. Uh, Elvis, shot by Mandy Walker, who we've spoken to, but actually we spoke to her before she, she was... She got shut down by COVID. Elvis was one of the movies that got shut down because Tom Hanks got COVID. But we didn't actually talk about Elvis because we haven't, I don't believe we've spoken to her since Elvis came out. We were talking about about Mulan, but Mandy's awesome. Uh, Empire of Light, Roger Deakins, unlikely we're going to talk to him. And uh, (laughs) and Tar, Florian Hoffmeister, who you talked to. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, it it was a great interview. Really liked it. And I wish him all the best. I, I hope it goes well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to see the ones that didn't get nominated. I thoroughly expected the Batman to get a nomination. I thoroughly ex- I, if if I had come up with my list of who was going to get nominated, this maybe wouldn't have been the list. But you can't argue with it. All of these movies are just they are the cutting edge of of visual storytelling. So uh, you know, I I do think some people were robbed, but you know. So I don't know if there's that much more to say about it. We're going to have our Oscar roundup, hopefully with our friend Janelle Riley from Variety Magazine. But just keep all those in your head. So Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? Well, it's The Last of Us. I know I talked about it when it was teased, uh, but The Last of Us, the HBO Max series, uh, I'm really enjoying. And I never played the video game. I don't know Me anything either. about the yeah. game, but uh, I got to say it, it's, you know, it's Craig Mays and we've talked about it, I, I know, yeah. a couple of times on the show. And it's really good. It's it's just it's really good. And I understand from people who have played the game who are, they were like, wow, there is some stuff in here that feels like it's right out of it. Yeah. yeah. And there's some creative liberties for, of course, people that you can't just make a version of the video game and, and call it a day. But it, it works really well. And it kind of look, they, they do some interesting stuff early on and not really giving much away. But there's a couple of main characters who they kill off immediately in the story and man it's like these are main like we we get spend time and invest time in them and then they're, they're just gone i always feel like that's a really gutsy move of a of a television series to you know kill off someone who they've spent serious time with the audience building the character yeah. making sure that like they have really you know solid development and then whoosh, they're gone uh it was great to see anna torv in the show who uh, i loved from fringe back in the day and uh she's almost unrecognizable doesn't look like like her, herself at all. I know Pedro Pascal is of course great. And man, even uh, uh, Nick Offerman. Yeah. Mm. Nick Offerman is in this and it's, he's spectacular. So look, it's a, uh, if you haven't tried it yet, the last of us, uh, HBO max, highly recommend it worth, worth a watch. Can I, can I tell you, I was a friend of mine named Reese, who is a huge fan of the game has been telling me how awesome it is. And I watched the first episode and I'm like, I mean, it's good, but it just kind of reminds me of, 28 you days. thought it needed a werewolf 28 no i didn't think it needed a werewolf i just feel like it was 28 days later the walking dead dawn of the dead the road like i i could think of a hundred things that felt like that and so i watched that i watched the second episode and i was like yeah kind of same thing and then and then i watched the third episode with nick offerman in it and uh that episode is just mind-blowing it's it's such a great episode of television so well done and you know kind of shows you the narrative lengths that this show is willing to go just kind of in terms of like the depth of the storytelling it's Craig Mazin really is uh pretty amazing I was never a giant fan of his movies I love I've loved his podcast for for probably a, a decade now script notes I listen to it every week but um when he got into television and he did uh Chernobyl you just realize what a great writer he is uh, you know I gotta say I thought of Chernobyl 
multiple times watching this. So I, I mean, it's yeah. it's not even stylistically, uh, you know, that similar. But I was reminded just because, you know, it's, it's quality television, the same way that Chernobyl was quality television. I feel like this is quality television. hundred, hundred percent. All right. Well, uh, I think that about wraps us up for the night. Who do we need to thank? Let's start off by thanking Ben Katz. Oh, my God, Ben. I'm so sorry. I want to start by apologizing to Ben Katz. Oh, dear Lord, Ben. We probably should have rehearsed this episode before uh, before recording it. I would not have thought that viewer mail needed rehearsal, but we we probably should have rehearsed that. You know, Larry Fong had those stickers made that said, if if you're going to shoot the rehearsal, then it's not a rehearsal. It's not a rehearsal, yeah. Yeah. You know, I I thought about mentioning Larry Fong earlier, too, because he had a nice origin story in his episode. But anyway, regardless, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana kicking the butt, building the show, putting it together. You know, she's launched her own company called Green Tree Creative. And if you like what she does with for us, you have the possibility of, of hiring her as well. She's got a, you know, putting it all together. Well, yeah, a team. I mean, that's the thing is so, it's like, you know, yeah. uh, you and me yakking like a couple of morons is one thing. But like, you know, all the behind the scenes stuff that Alana coordinates and understanding kind of the back end of how this stuff is put together, how it is marketed, how it reaches its audience. Like, that's the stuff that honestly, I don't really know anything about. And she's made a humongous difference for this show. Yeah, her website is called growwithgreentree.com and you can reach out to her and uh, she can, I'm sure, help you with whatever you're doing. It is way more complex than you might think. And if you wonder why there's so many podcasts out there that never get heard and why there's so many podcasts out there that have such poor production value, uh, it's because they probably don't have an Alana. They probably don't have mm. producers. They, they are trying to do everything themselves. And so, yes, Alana Cody, uh, growwithgreentree.com. You can reach out to her and she can, uh, you know, uh, help you with your podcast. And uh, Ben, uh, we should definitely thank Kay Zalatracci. Of course. Who posted something very nice or tagged me on something very nice on Facebook, he, uh, comparing me to some uh, very prolific YouTuber who has done tons and tons of cool stuff and has a very good channel and basically equated his relationship with me. To, like, you know, he's going through withdrawals and he watches this guy when he needs to get some tech information or something. And I got to say that it was very kind because he compared me to someone who was really, really professional. And uh, I really appreciate <laughs> that. Th- th- thank you, Kay. It was very, very. The illusion is complete. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so Ben, uh, where can people find you if they want to track you down? Uh, please go to benrock.com and you'll find all the information you need to find me right there, including all my social medias and LinkedIn's and Twitters and whatnot. How about yourself, Philia? Where can people find you? You can track me down over at Hot Red Cameras. Hotredcameras.com is the web store. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is, seems to be a, a way that people are finding me these days. So uh, there's only a couple of Ilya Friedmans. You'll, you'll find me real quick if you search for me. All right. So, Ilya, why don't you take us out now? <laughs> Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.